Good afternoon, everyone. Danielle Belanger here from the Côte Saint-Luc Public Library, joining you virtually. Thank you for joining in today. We have a great program ahead. Thank you as well to Ellen Beaumont at the Azrieli Foundation for making today's program possible. In a few moments, she'll speak about the Azrieli Foundation and its Holocaust Memoirs Survivors Program and introduce our guest speaker. Following this, Councillor Mike Cohen will interview Mr. Blit about his poignant memoir, A Promise of Sweet Tea. Welcome, everyone, and I pass the microphone on to Ellen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Danielle. On behalf of the Azrieli Foundation, I would like to thank you, Danielle, for um, organizing this uh, program this afternoon for International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um, we commemorate this day to uh, honor the victims of the Holocaust. Being in the presence of a Holocaust survivor, listening to them, really listening and learning is a rare opportunity. The act of telling a story engages us, it piques our interests, and it grabs people's attention who in turn pass these stories along. Now this power of storytelling can keep a person's memory alive long after they're gone, preventing a kind of second death, the death that comes after memories can no longer be told and shared. Now this resonates with me knowing that there are stories of victims whose voices were never heard. And that is why the work that we do is so important. We collect, preserve, publish, and distribute the memoirs of Holocaust survivors who came to Canada after the war. And I'm very happy to say that Pincus's memoir, A Promise of Sweet Tea, has brought our number of published survivor stories to 120. Our collection of books and outstanding resources and workshops for teachers are available in English and French and are offered free of charge to schools uh, and libraries across the country and Holocaust remembrance programs such as this one. The books can be purchased by the public through our website, Amazon or Indigo. As a former actor in Yiddish theater, Pincus has a gift for storytelling. He brings to life a lost world of Jewish culture from a, sw a small village in Eastern Europe, now part of Ukraine. A Promise of Sweet Tea is an evocative and wryly told story of loss, survival, and ultimately love for community, language, and Jewish culture. It is brimming with references to music, to folk tales, to the particular mix of languages Pincus was exposed to in his childhood. And it's written from his perspective as a child. Pincus really brings the reader along such a vivid journey with him through villages, marshes, fields, and forests as he and his family face death, as Pincus struggles with his faith and with his mortality. What I find so outstanding about this memoir is not only his portrait of a community lost, not only his strength and resilience in the face of terror, but also his humor, his wit, his use of irony that shines through his writing. And of course, just being with Pincus, who I had the pleasure of meeting this uh, past 
uh, year through virtual connection. Uh, it's just been such a pleasure to spend time with him and, and his wife, Giselle. So it's been an honor meeting you, um, Pincus. I am sure that this will be a very interesting presentation for all of you. And I thank you for being here today. It is now my pleasure to ask Councillor Mike Cohen to facilitate a conversation with Pincus Blit. Uh, thank you very much, Ellen. And um, of course, Thursday, January 27th is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And joining us today is Code St. Luke resident. I say that very proudly, Code St. Luke resident Pincus Eliyahu Blit. He's the author of the book published by the Azraeli series of Holocaust survivor memoirs, published titles. It's called A Promise of Sweet Tea, and it depicts a Jewish community coming alive in this vividly told story of a childhood interrupted by the Holocaust. Pincus Blit conjures Kortelesi, a humble, vibrant village in the backwoods of Western Ukraine, where he lived in fear of Cossacks and wolves and the local anti-Semitic children. I will tell you that uh, I interviewed Pincus uh, for my column in the suburban newspaper last summer, but I hadn't read the book yet. I had only read the press release. Well, here is the book right now. I'm gonna put it right up in there in front of the screen. And I have to tell you, Pincus, that I couldn't put it down. It was, I am waiting for the motion picture. I don't know who will star as Pincus Blit, maybe Robert Redford, I'm not sure, but it was fascinating, edge of your seat, and I, I was so impressed. And I know uh, when it's available at our library and we're gonna be also making copies available for people to, uh, to, uh, to win, um, they're all going to treasure it. And I'm also making sure that our students in the English Montreal School Board get to see it and hopefully get to meet you as well, personally or virtually. So I think I'm gonna start off by asking you the first question. If we do have time at the end for people to put in their questions in the chat, uh, we can do that as well. But Pincus, let me ask you, uh, as a child, how did you cope with the horrors that surrounded you? Did you realize your life was in danger? Well, during the war or before the war? Well, I would say before the war, based on what I read, before the war, you knew trouble was coming and certainly during the war. Because well, there was, before, I, you, before yeah. the war, there was, all, there was always comfort. There were grandparents, there were uncles. They were all there that we were in your, interested in protecting you. Yes, I was afraid of wolves because uh, that's, that's the animal that we were most afraid of uh, in the area. And uh, Cossacks, there were no more Cossacks in my times, because, but my grandmother, mm -hmm. uh, she lived through Cossacks pogroms. Uh, her cousins, uh, the, the, her cousins were killed by Cossacks. Uh, husband and wife team, and they left three orphan children. Two of them ended up in Canada after, the, uh, after that, and the, another one, ended up, a daughter, ended up in the United States in Boston. And it was this family that uh, brought us into uh, Canada. Uh, they were acting as uh, my mother's uh, second cousins. So my grandmother knew about Cossacks and she was talking a lot about it to me. And I thought that they were all around me, but uh, actually there were no more Cossacks in the neighborhood. Uh, Pincus, 
when we, you know, most of the book, you, your life does seem to be in danger almost every page until we get to the end when you're liberated and then you, you go across Europe and then you make your way to Canada and we, we see the happy ending and the extraordinary ending. I mean, frankly, uh, reading that book, I'm surprised that anyone in, that faced what you faced lived past their 10th birthday. Uh, who do you credit your survival to? My dad, of course, during the war. My dad was uh, actually, he, he almost like in his mind, he knew we were going to survive. So there was no doubt in his mind about survival. Uh, but he did, he did everything. He took the risks. He, he brought the food. He, he entertained us. He told us stories. He encouraged us to, to take the bad and the good. And we'll all live through that. And his, his line was always, we'll be dancing on his grave. And that is, you know, Maximo Hitler will be dancing on his grave. He used, that's the way he used to talk. So it, my dad, my mother too, of course, but she was, she sometimes would get hysterical about things. She, she couldn't take the pressure. It, was, it wasn't easy for her. But uh, there was a time when we were alone with, only with my mother and we thought our, our father was uh, killed in, in Ratno during the liquidation, that when she had to take up the responsibility of feeding her children and uh, helping in their survival, she was there, very heroic, very heroic. She fought like a lioness uh, to, to save us and to help us survive. And I think both your parents uh, had good strategic advice because it was clear from reading the book that if they would have decided A instead of B, you could have all passed, you could have all been, been killed by the Nazis and the Germans. Yes, there were some, some most accidents. Like the time, instead of sleeping in our own house at the beginning of the village, we decided to sleep at the end of the village with my uh, grand, the paternal grandparents. And this day, the Germans came and whoever they caught was killed. We managed to, uh, to, to run out through the back door and escape. Even now I get the shivers when I think about it. But we couldn't have done the same thing in our house because there was no exit door. Once <laughs> the door was blocked, yeah. That's it, you know, there was only one door out. And my grandfather, he had uh, an exit door. So we went through the exit door straight into the field and we survived. That's one thing, uh, one incident where it was uh, all, everything was accidental. Of course, to my dad, it was always God's, uh, he believed in God very strongly, my dad. I, 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 uh, I, I was, you know, I've always been afraid of wolves. Wolves. I've, I, I just, when I see them in TV and, and I, I was seeing how you and your father and your brother and your mother, you came face to face with them so often. Uh, one, yeah. one part of the book, your father was in the deep snow and he just walked around the wolf and the wolf was too lazy to attack him. I mean, I would have, I would have had nightmares to the, to this day if I was that close to a wolf. <laughs> my, my dad was really a buster at this, you know, and, but he knew when to, uh, when to give in and when to fight back. Okay, this time, I, I, the, apparently the wolf also had his problems. He saw this, this massive, huge person with the, 
my father was must have looked very big with a pack of of uh, potatoes on his, right. on his back. So he must have been too too big for the wolf to to uh, attack. So, but he still he stood there firmly in the path, and my father had to go all around him, and, uh, and nothing, nobody was hurt. Yeah. Uh, Pincus says one of only two remaining survivors from your village. The other one being your uh, bring your brother Laser. What is yeah. it you would like people to know about and think of when they think of Cordelazy? That it was a Jewish village even though the majority of the population was Ukrainian, uh, uh, you know, in the Greek Orthodox church uh, with a beautiful church. But, and we were only probably, uh, maybe 25, 30 Jewish families in the village. But the village had everything that the Jewish person that is religious needed. It had a synagogue, it had a mikveh, it had a cheder, it had it had a rabbi and the and the teacher. And it had so that it was a wonderful, wonderful community that lived together, celebrated holidays, and dealt with each other dealt with the local population in a friendly way. And it just perished. It, it was, there were good people, those, those Jewish villagers, good, honest, straight people. Are you talking about the village before the war, Pincus? Is that what it was like before the yes, war? Yes, before you... the war. Yes, before right, the war. Right. But during the war, we had nothing. During the war, we yeah. were just, trying to survive and, and I don't know, I don't think we knew what was happening. I don't think there was no newspaper, there was no radio. We didn't know what was happening in Warsaw, what was happening in Lodge, and we didn't know what was happening in Kiev. Right. But uh, we always hoped that we will survive the war. Nobody really believed that it was a total extermination, you know. Nobody expected something like this to happen. I'm sure they didn't. I mean, you were such a young man to have to have your life turned upside down. I mean, uh, you you matured very quickly from reading the book. You did not seem to be someone who was 10 or 11 years old. The way you handled your day-to-day -day life, living, literally sleeping in fields and in farmhouses, no change of clothing, getting lice, getting fleas. Uh, you seem very stoic. Yeah, well, not only this, I decided, if need be, to save my life, I will sacrifice my parents and my family. Because there was time when my mother was hysterical and she was pleading with my father, that's enough, I can't take it anymore. Take us to the Germans. Yes. Well... My father was must have been very much in love with uh, mm -hmm. with mother because he tolerated her her crying and her screaming and her complaints, you know. 
But uh, just in case uh, my father would decide to listen to her, I made my own plans. I had a 10, 11 year old kid. I said, I'm not going to the Germans. I'll stay in the forest. Of course, I, I didn't know what would take for me to survive in the forest all along, but I decided uh, to, to, to uh, stay in the forest. I will run away. I'm not going to the Germans. And the one time I remember we were all locked in my maternal grandparents' home and they were you know, threatening us with their guns and breaking furniture and doing, uh, I left my parents. I ran out through the window into the dark. I stayed outside the whole night and all on my own because I didn't think we should we should stay there and take this, uh, uh, you know, treatment. So I ran out, to, you know, leaving my parents, my brother, and my grandparents. I just ran out through the window and went into the fields. Because if someone would have told you when you were 10 years old that 80 years later you'd be on a Zoom call telling your story of success, would you have believed them? No, no, of course not. I didn't think we had a Zoom. Of course not. I didn't know there was Zoom until two years ago myself. No, no. Uh, I didn't invent a Zoom. Yeah, but it, it's, it's an incredible story to be sitting here talking to you. Again, as I told you off air, you know, I said to myself, how did he live past his 10th birthday? It's, it's an absolute miracle. Uh, and you were sharing that with me. But what was it like? We hear about the former Soviet Union. You know, we hear a lot about the Ukraine and the, and the Moscow right now in the news every day. But what was it like when the Soviets invaded your village, your vibrant village? That changed your life forever. Completely, yes. Oh, yes. It was, uh, uh, well, you know, I think the Soviets at that time, at least maybe now too, I don't know, concentrated on the young people. And the young people got everything. But they also got brainwashing and propaganda to such an extent that Stalin was everything to me. I mean, he was loved. He was praised. I still remember some of the songs and poems that I used to sing about Stalin's love for children, you know. And Stalin's love for children was always with us, and we always remember this. But uh, under the Polish regime, they didn't need the propaganda. You know, Pilsudski was there, okay, he was there, he was a general and he was a leader, but that's the extent. But the Russians, the Soviets were, were presenting Stalin as a god the one that provides the air to breathe. And this is the way we thought about it. This is the way we thought. This so, is the way we, we, we lived under, under the Soviet Union. The former Soviet Union, which young viewers won't remember, but I remember uh, working at Canadian Jewish Congress and it was still the free Soviet Jewry movement. And of course, things got so much better uh, you know, when uh, they broke up and they all became independent states. And now if you look, you, what do you think, by the way, when you watch the news right now and you see Putin and you see uh, Ukraine under threat, uh, that must give you chills. 
It does. It, it brings, I think, Putin is going back to Stalinism. He wants to create Stalin's empire. And he, he somehow he'll have to be stopped. I mean, he, he, he can't allow another uh, a country with atomic weapons uh, to, to attack peaceful countries. If Ukraine wants to be in NATO, well, that's, that's Ukraine's problem. That's Ukraine's idea. I think Ukraine should have the freedom of, uh, of being in NATO. Uh, and the Soviets should not interfere, or the, the Russia should not in, interfere, or Putin should not interfere with a free country. Because Ukraine wants to be a free country. It's time for Ukraine. Ukraine has not been a free country for too many years, you know, because um, part of it was under Poland and part under the Soviet Union, and mm -hmm. then completely under the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, I think Ukraine is entitled to have its freedom. If it wants to be a part of NATO, it should have the right to be part of NATO. So, Pincus, you told us about when the Soviets came in. What about when the Nazis arrived? What did they do to your village? Oh, my God. Well, I still... When, when the German forces would move in, in their trucks, the, um, the front line was, was always a bunch of motorcycles. They would move ahead um, before the trucks. And when you heard those motorcycles, you knew that German soldiers are coming. And it still gives me the shivers when I hear the sound of a motorcycle. Really? <laughs> oh, yes. The sound of a motorcycle brings German soldiers. And uh, they are they are bad, of course, because they came to kill. Uh, that's why they would come. They had, they, uh, only once they came to our village, they took the adults to the in front of the to the square in front of the church, they uh, rang. They they told the Jews to work harder, to uh, wash more often, things like this. And then they said, "You didn't laufen," and uh, everyone began to run, thinking that they will be shot in the back. But nothing happened, and uh, for the life of me, I could. Never find out. They had everyone. They had all the entire Jewish village there in front of them. And nothing happened. They just did this thing here. And then they had to come six or seven times before they killed everyone in the village. Six or seven times. Yeah. We, 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 we hear the stories. I, I went to Poland many years ago on a trip uh, with survivors. Uh, we went to the camps. I heard from other survivors. We've seen movies, we've seen TV shows, we've seen books, but you can never understand how cold-blooded these Nazis were. And I'm sure that, you know, all these years later, when you hear stories, uh, Pincus, of, of Nazi war criminals who are still living in Canada, uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, show their innocence and so on, it must, it must give you the chills as well. 
Yeah, well, the chief of police, the Ukrainian chief of police, uh, somehow, um, I don't, it's a senior moment, I don't remember the name of the, the investigator, but I also got a call from the, the, uh, the department in the United States. Yeah. His name is yeah, Kenneth Kennedy. He is a prosecutor. And they found the chief of police lived in Denver, Colorado. Okay. From the Ukraine, from yeah. our village. Now, I was interviewed several times and to hear that he was alive. Yeah. And all his victims are dead lying there in the swamps. It was, you know, I was got so angry with the Americans that they 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 were able to. They didn't stop to people like this to come into their country. Right. And there he was, but I haven't heard from them after. I guess he must have died. So that's the end of the story. But there was the chief of police, the chief of the Ukrainian police. Who was responsible for the death of uh, of not only Jews and gypsies, but also his, his own brothers, you know, the Ukrainians. They were killed with the help of the Ukrainian police. There was a life and well, and probably raised a good family. I know one of his sons is a professor, apparently. You know, so I have nothing against his family, but right. he certainly should have been tried and charged. Well, it took until Brian Mulroney was elected prime minister of Canada for our Canadian government to do something. It was Brian Mulroney who created the Duchesne Commission. And, and I just started to work in oh, the yeah. Canadian Jewish Congress back in 1988 when, uh, when yeah. that was one of my first dossiers to work at. And I give them credit because they did what they could. It was uh, not, they weren't in office prior to that. It wasn't the the government uh, of none is too many. And uh, they did. And, and I remember going to court many times to see these proceedings and how all these alleged Nazi war criminals who we knew were guilty were all saying, I'm a frail old man, leave me alone. But uh, I, I'm sure you wouldn't think that way if you came face to face with one of those Nazis who uh, was responsible for uh, killing your friends and your family. You know, one thing you just said before about how cold-blooded they were in the in the what they did. Yeah, how cold-blooded they were. My uh, one of when they came to the marshes, two Germans uh, disguised as Ukrainian women for some reason. Really, and uh, they uh, they were so cold-blooded that. Uh, they uh, they killed the, the the people in the marshes, and uh, including babies. And if uh, the the mother was killed and she fell with the baby and the baby was crying and walking, they would shoot the babies. You know, like uh, that survived the fall. You know, they they, they were cold blooded. They were. They were trained, I guess, and they, they considered Jews as, I, I don't know, as below the the animal world. Yeah. Below the, really, uh, yeah. 
not worthy of living in their eyes. No, no. Yeah. So Pincus, you're 90 years young. 90 um, years. How old exactly? 90, yeah. Right. So, so 90 years, I say young, not old. 90 years young. Yeah, you're very young. Good, good. Yeah, yeah. Why <laughs> did you decide to write a book at this stage of your life? And how long did it take you? I decided to write when I retired. When I retired from from my practice, my law practice. And right. I felt that I should tell the story. I mean, and I did write before that too. I have notes and stuff like this. I've been doing it all the time. I've been, so it's not something that I decided overnight. <clears throat> I was thinking about it for a long time. And when, when I had the time, I decided to simply to write about it. I mean, uh, the, I'm the only one and my brother, the only people that can give any information on the village. Well, uh, Ukrainians too were from the village were killed, all of them, most of them. Like actually, I think there was a population of about 3,000 and almost 3,000 men, women and children were massacred and the village was burned down to the ground. How long did it take you to write the book? Uh, about two years, two and a half years. And did you write it by hand or did you type it in your computer? Ah, the computer, yes. How did it come about that you approached the Azraeli Foundation, which we should all be grateful for? May David J. Azraeli rest in peace. Uh, did you know David Azraeli? Did you ever meet him, by the I way? I knew who he was. I never met him. Yeah, well, I had the pleasure of meeting him many, many times in my life, interviewing him, a fascinating man, and his children have carried on his legacy wonderfully. How did you go about, did they approach you? Did you approach them? How did that all happen? No, I, I, first I approached them, I sent them a draft, and uh, it was rejected. <laughs> okay. Then a couple of months later, I got a call, and they were all excited about it. Okay. I was on the phone, and I was excited too. You know, the, when they talked to me about terms, I said, you make the terms, whatever terms there are. <laughs> I love terms. Just publish it, and 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 uh, and uh, they were very thorough. I know uh, they were very thorough. They did a lot of fact checking. I mean, it's a beautiful, oh, yes. beautiful book. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And they even had some Russian experts there used the Russian words, and Ukrainians. Uh, they had uh, sometimes we had disagreements, so some. I won, some I lost. I mean, well, I, for the lack of another word, uh, but it wasn't a battle, it was really a discussion. And Dvara Levine is a wonderful person. She had so much uh, sympathy for, for, for my- That's your editor. Yeah. Yeah, She's your editor. The, the editor, yeah. Right, right. I have well, a prompter, yeah. You need a good, you need a good editor, that's for sure. Yeah, no, um, she did a wonderful job, and she did a she did a wonderful, wonderful job, and uh, I'm sure she improved the text, she improved the story, she made it uh, she made it what it came out to be, and and a beautiful job at that. Uh, where did the title come from? A promise of sweet tea. Actually, it was Giselle that. I, at first, I wanted to, the, the title I suggested was 
only the lucky ones die. And this comes from the story where the woman that was pregnant, she gave birth to triplets and she died and the triplets died. Oh my. The line that was used after she died, that she was lucky to have died. Yes, she was, I think that was the truth. She was lucky because a month or six weeks later, the Germans came and killed everyone, killed all the Jews and but they were not there to be killed anymore. Yeah. So they would have been lucky to have died. But they didn't like, uh, the foundation didn't like the title. Okay. So Giselle suggested, because my father promised to, there was a time I loved tea, you know. When I had to stay away from sugar, I, I couldn't have any tea. <laughs> but I when... So tea without sugar is nothing. <laughs> Not very sweet. <laughs> no, the tea has to have sugar. I think I probably like the sugar more than the tea. And I would, as a kid, I remember it was in the middle of the night, I would eat, drink rather cold tea. Right. So my father promised to bring us to America and I could have all the sweet tea I wanted. And are you still drinking sweet tea to this day, Pincus? No, I have to stay away from sugar. I can't have sugar. Oh, isn't that ironic? Isn't that <laughs> ironic? Interesting. Uh, so, uh, so tell us, tell the tell the viewers. I was fascinated with this too. Uh, how did you end up in Canada, and how did you manage to pick up the pieces of your life after the war? <clears throat> you know, first of all, pick up the pieces after the war. When we came to Canada, we felt at home immediately. <laughs> and we met all sorts of cotillasites that moved from Cotillas to Montreal. We met quite a few people that used to live in Cotillas. Uh, both of my grandparents lived in the States for many years. My grandfather, Berchik, my mother's father, lived in Pittsburgh and he made those uh, railway spikes. That's what he was doing. My father's father, he lived in New York, probably worked in a sweatshop. Uh, and he, uh, he also he lived in, in, in New York for, for many, many years, many years. He, he came, uh, he returned home only for purposes of procreation, you know, he impregnated his wife and he went back. And, <laughs> and uh, he, my grandmother, who had two, maybe three children to support while he was away, suddenly she was pleading with him, bring us to America. She had uh, already a married sister that lived yeah. in New York City. Bring us to America, he, yeah. he refused. And uh, so finally she decided to go and see his, my grandfather was a follower of a rabbi, a saintly rabbi, a miracle working rabbi. The Triska Rebbe, the Triska Rebbe. So uh, she went to see him. He was very sympathetic and he wrote a letter to my grandfather ordering him to bring the family to America. And, um, and when the rabbi orders you, you have to listen. Mm -hmm. 
but he didn't. He said, Ich bin alleine Rebbe. I am myself a rabbi. I'm coming home. But he came home only after the First World War. You know, during the First war, World War, he was in America. So, but I mentioned before the, uh, the children, these orphans of my mother's, my grandmother's cousins, who, whose parents were killed by Cossacks. And the children through some agency in the United States, you know, in Canada, were brought to the boys, uh, Rutenberg, the name Jack and Philip Rutenberg, two boys, were brought to uh, Canada, Montreal. And the daughter, she was uh, ended up somehow in Boston. So I don't know how, but there was, they found out that we are alive. Mm -hmm. We were in a DP camp in Austria. Yeah. Been there a lot far from Linz. They found out that we were alive. There were lists probably distributed in Canada and the United States of survivors. And they found our name. They got in touch with us. And and there was Zalman, Zalman Klein. There was another cotillicite. Actually, he came from Bris, Prestatovsk. And uh, he put together a package. He raised money from friends and relatives in Argentina and in Cuba and the United States and Canada. Yeah. And um, before you know it, we were being interviewed by, by uh, a Canadian uh, uh, official in, in, in Linz. And uh, next thing we're on the boat to Halifax. Where you got home, where you got seasick, but you made but you made the trip. Oh, was I seasick? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I knew that was coming when I when I saw you were on the ship. I said it's coming. I'm just waiting for it, and there, uh, and there it was. Oh, what a sickness it is! He, you become suicidal, really. It's, it's... I I uh, I was only on a you know a, a a nice cruise ship a couple times in my life, and I got semi seasick and said I'm never going again. But that's a whole other topic. Uh, so you came to Canada, just to wrap up a couple more questions, then we'll see if uh, anyone wants to give a question through the chat. Um, uh, you, you came to Canada and you had a, you built a family, you, you raised a family and you, and you had a su very successful career as a lawyer, only retiring in your 80s. Yeah, yes, I retired in my 80s. I had, I had some wonderful partners and we had a good firm. Uh, unfortunately, they all died on me mm. before. And the last one was a young man by the name of Michelle Eru. We were together for a good number of years. Before that was Alfred Zimmerman and Bernard Gardner. Mm. Uh, was, uh, we, were, we had a big office, but they had a good practice. And I had a uh, especially good clientele. One of them, by my clients, they, they knew me around the courthouse by the name of the client. Yeah, it was an American company, and they had investments all over the province of Quebec and Canada. And I, I was traveling all across Quebec to uh, to deal with their cases, and so there was good money in it. Uh, so. Um, I was going to say, you know, it's such a great story. You should write a book, but that's what we're here for. You did write a book and your yeah. whole story is there for people to see. 
Uh, let me conclude with one last question before we uh, we see if uh, anyone uh, through Maria, Danielle will ask questions through the chat that they can uh, they can they can provide with you. But uh, uh, I, I know the book's a huge success. I know more people are going to want to read it. I know that I'm going to work through my end with my my hat at the English Montreal School Board to get our students to read it and maybe meet you virtually. But uh, when's the movie coming? <laughs> movie. I don't know. Perfect script for a movie. I'm sure no. the Israeli Foundation is ready for a movie. Yeah, I saw. Uh, I was thinking about the, you know, the, what happened in Rwanda, in, in the Hutus and the Tutsis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, it was a Holocaust. It was a. Uh, it was. It was a genocide. It was, yeah. And it was very similar to. I remember the feelings, the feelings of fear, of running away, of, and this is, a, I really felt for those people. And this Canadian general, what was this? Romeo Dallaire. Romeo LeBlanc, yeah. Romeo Dallaire. Dallaire, yeah. Yeah. What a nincompoop. I mean, he, he allowed people to getting killed because of some, I don't know, military considerations, you know. So when I saw that, I saw the movie, you know, and I, yeah. I, I felt very much going through myself again, the, the same, especially fear of, fear of being killed, fear of being shot. Yes, absolutely. I can't the, even imagine. The choices you have to make, the choice you have to make to run, to stand still, to fight back, what to do, what to do. And uh, this is uh, a terrible situation to be able to live this. Absolutely, live. absolutely. But, but an important story to tell. If you don't mind, we will take some questions. Uh, Maria or Danielle, would you, be, would you be able to read any of the questions we're getting through the chat? And if people have a question, just write it out in the chat and Danielle and Maria will read it out. Uh, Danielle, would you like to do that? Yes, it is not a question, really. It's more of a comment that we just received. Um, it says, thank you for sharing your amazing life story, Mr. Blit. Uh, and it asks, I'm curious to know what lessons you have for today's youngsters who cannot come close to relating to your extraordinary and horrific experiences. Okay, that comes from Glenn Nashen, former city councillor and... Uh... Man about town. Go ahead, uh, Pincus. Would you mind? Uh, well, you 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 have to learn how to love, love, love people, not hate, and uh, you have to allow others to have the freedom that you want to have as well. And uh, hate is a terrible thing, and some people uh, they hate for no good reason. They they. You know, and this is the worst kind of uh, hate, is the hate without, without reason, with, without consideration for something else, just pure evil hate. And this is terrible for, and it's happening, it's happening right now. It's happening in many parts of the world. It's happening right now in, in, uh, in Eastern Europe, where Russia wants to take over Ukraine. They, they consider the Ukrainians, 
most of the Ukrainians consider themselves completely different from the Russians. They are different people with a different culture, a different history. But uh, Russians, including men like Solzhenitsyn, consider Ukraine as part of of Russia, part of the Soviet Union. Uh, Ukrainians should have their freedom to decide what the... as long as through that they don't hurt others by by doing uh, something, you know, else. But thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mr. Blit. I'm sorry. Uh, I I think I cut you off involuntarily there. I'll let sure. you finish no your problem. thought. I I'm finished. Okay. Thank you so much. Sound advice, sir. Thank you. Uh, we have another comment from Philip Greenberg. Thank you, Pinchas. Keep oh, well Philip. from Philip and Tamara. Thank you, Philip. Thank you, Tamara. Nice to hear from you. And uh, I see something else has just come up uh, from Bernard. How did you find out about the concentration camps and how did you survive day to day in the forest? As long as we had food in the forest, we were able to survive. It's, uh, I, we, I ran barefoot over the snow and then stuck my feet into the fire to warm up. Wow. <laughs> so there was, no, there was no problem. As, as long as they let us live and didn't catch us, we were surviving. We were doing quite well in the summer, especially when we had mushrooms and blueberries and uh, all sorts of other greenery that we could pick up and make a borscht and, and eat. So we weren't, our bellies were not swollen. We were not in Auschwitz. We were, we were really, uh, we lived in the forest, we were hiding, of course, afraid to be caught and killed. But uh, life was going on and, and we had our schedules, we had our things to do and, and we, until liberation. Yeah. Do you do you look back on those days? Because I've been hearing comments from people who are either survivors or family of survivors during the pandemic that we suffered now for the last two years. And you hear people protesting about not being able to go to restaurants and not being able to go to a movie, not being able to uh, stay out late, not being able to get together with friends. And I've heard from some survivors saying, you know, after what we went through, you know, don't complain. Uh, has that ever crossed your mind in the last two years? Because you too have been part of this uh, pandemic, and but you experienced something much worse. Yeah, but uh, the pandemic, yes, of course, uh, you you learn to live with it. it uh, you're not afraid of. Well, you can't hide from the from the virus. <laughs> when the Germans, you can run into the forest, but uh, but you, if you run into the forest, you can probably hide from the virus as well. You, know? you stay away from people right. and you're okay. Uh, well, I, I didn't make any comparisons between the two, the two different situations. Yeah. Uh, here, here you, you're, you're, you have to adjust to certain things to, to prevent being infected. So you have to adjust. You learn to adjust. I don't understand those people who, who don't take the opinion of the doctors and professionals and they believe others who, 
who think that their freedoms are being taken away. Well, sometimes you have to give up some freedom to uh, to um, to survive. You you give away the freedom of driving your car beyond the uh, speed limit. Uh, yeah, it helps you to survive. Uh, Very well said. I I I like that comparison, uh, Danielle. We have uh, another question from Elaine Rand. If you want to read it. I'm sorry. I thought that was the same question because I saw the forest appear, but it okay. is a different question. It's similar. Go ahead. Uh, from Go ahead. Yeah. Elaine Rand, for how long did you hide in the forest? Did you have to move your camp often? Were you part of a large group who had come together from different locations? Well, we were in the forest for two, two and a half years. We were with another couple a Ukrainian couple, not Jewish, husband and wife, uh, Adam. His name was Adam. Uh, I don't remember his family name. I don't remember his wife's name. She was a little woman, very quiet, and uh, we'll call her Eve, okay? And uh, so this was, he was, he uh, lost seven of his children at the hands of the Germans. And he was afraid to return back to the village. And he stayed with us for oh, about a year and a half uh, in the forest. Uh, actually, what happened was when the Germans killed off the Ukrainian population in Kotelis, Kotelisi, uh, those who survived, very few of them, ran into the forest and we stayed with them. And that's where we finally found our father who was escaped from, from Ratno and uh, survived the Ratno liquidation. Uh, and uh, after a while, all the people that survived, they went, when the Germans left, they went back to their village and they started, tried to start their life again. Adam said, no, he wouldn't go back to the village. And he decided to stay with us. And we lived together with, with uh, Adam and, uh, and my father. So they worked together. They went to look for food together. And they were good friends. You know, they, they, uh, and, uh, yes, and at movie, yes, we, we had to change, move from one place to another where we built our hut. Or uh, um, we probably moved about five or six times, and we built our hut five or six times uh, because, for one reason or another, first of all, we had to um, we, when someone stumbled on our on our, on our camp and uh, and ran away. We decided to move because we thought maybe he would report on us or something like this. So we had to change a few, a few times. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna uh, stop the questions at that point. It's been, it's fascinating reading your book. Fascinating meeting you virtually for the second time. I really hope to meet you when it's nice in the spring when we have something outdoors. And I do wanna. I'll definitely be calling upon you to. Uh, 
to speak to some of our students and uh, I've already started with the Israeli Foundation. So I uh, want to thank the audience and I want to let everybody know that the, uh, the book, uh, uh, you can borrow Mr. Blitz's book from the library and we're also going to have some draws for free copies of the book uh, provided by the foundation. You just have to uh, contact Maria Racina at the library if you want more information. And Ellen, uh, do you have any closing remarks that you'd like to make before we conclude? And, and Maria, by the way, Maria's email address is in the chat. It's mresina, R-E-S-S-I-N-A, at coatsyluke.org. So you could email her to be eligible to get a free copy of this marvelous book. Ellen, would you like to uh, close us out? I just want to say thank you very much for a very uh, wonderful conversation. It's always a pleasure to see you, Pincus. And thank you, uh, Councillor Cohn, for facilitating the conversation today. Um, just everyone to take a moment, today's International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um, it's the day to commemorate the victims of the Holocaust. Uh, it's also the, the date of the liberation of Auschwitz. And it's a day that we should all just say, I remember, and uh, to acknowledge, um, you know, and remember what you heard here today. I hope you take something away from it, from listening to a survivor. So thank you. Be well. Stay safe. Councillor, thank you. It was wonderful chatting with you. It, it was a pleasure. And I am very proud to be the uh, counselor responsible this mandate. I want to thank Mayor Mitchell Brownstein for giving me back the portfolio of library and culture. Uh, I, I want to thank Danielle, uh, who's worked very hard on this event, uh, and Maria, uh, one of uh, our newcomers who previously worked at the Jewish Public Library. So uh, great to have her. And uh, we hope to do many more of these type of events down the line. Uh, online and let's hope let's hope there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we'll be able to do it in person so again thank you everyone and please everybody stay in touch and if you're not a member of the library please join thank you thank you bye-bye bye-bye